Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. June's Journey is a fascinating hidden object mystery gaming app where you'll play as June Parker, tasked with a daunting obligation, solve your sister's murder. Set in the 1920s, the era of glitz and glam, this family mystery is one for the ages. Everyone's a suspect until your investigation determines otherwise. The clues are all around you, hidden within tricky twists and turns. You'll collect detailed information about each character in your photo album where you'll comb over every detail. You can even join a detective's club to chat and play with others or against them in the detective's league. With hundreds of puzzles to solve, you should probably get started today. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. We all have busy lives these days, and we don't want to waste a day recovering after a night out. That's why Zbiotics is the answer we've all been looking for. Their probiotic was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Pre-alcohol produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. This is a proactive solution that wards off feeling miserable the next day instead of a reactive approach like drinking electrolytes or eating greasy food. Enhance your mornings with Zbiotics. Go to zbiotics.com/cbs to get 15% off your first order when you use code CBS at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with a 100% money back guarantee. So, if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com/cbs and use the code CBS at checkout for 15% off. Thank you Zbiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times. I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington, and this week on Face the Nation, debt crisis averted. Now, what else can a divided Washington accomplish for Americans and the economy? President Biden signed the bipartisan deal to cut federal spending and suspend the nation's debt ceiling just hours before what could have been a catastrophic default. No one got everything they wanted, but the American people got what they needed. We'll ask two dealmakers, West Virginia's Democratic Senator Joe Manchin and Louisiana Republican Garrett Graves, about what's next for the country. Plus, Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan on how brinkmanship impacts an ever-changing economy. Then, the field of Republicans running for president is growing, with one high-profile competitor diving in. Our great American comeback will start by sending Joe Biden back to his basement in Delaware. And more expected to cruise into the race this week. Come this Wednesday, I'm announcing in Iowa. We'll check in with our expert CBS News political panel on what voters can expect as the race intensifies. Overseas, Russia steps up its attacks in and around Kyiv. Can Ukraine's coming counteroffensive put Moscow back on its heels? We'll check in with Ukrainian Ambassador Oksana Markarova. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. We have a lot to get to this morning and we begin with Republican Congressman Garrett Graves who led Republican negotiators during the debate over raising the debt ceiling. He joins us from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Good to talk to you. Hey, great to be with you. Uh, President Biden said you all were respectful, honest and operated in good faith. Do you see any sign on the heels of this, that Republican leaders can work with the White House on big issues like immigration reform and border security? Is there momentum? Look, the the negotiations certainly were in good faith, but they also included a lot of candor. Uh, we, We had some tense moments throughout, but I'd love to tell you that we could build upon this. We certainly have a crisis in the energy space. We continue to have a financial crisis. And as you indicated, immigration is a huge issue where we should be able to work together. Well, more Democrats than Republicans actually voted for the deal that you negotiated, and it leaves largely intact most of the president's economic agenda. How can you claim, as you told my CBS colleague the other day, that the White House got schooled? 
because the White House laid down about seven red lines, including that they wouldn't negotiate, that they wouldn't allow anything to be done on work requirements, that they wouldn't allow any changes to environmental laws, that they wouldn't allow us to take any funds from IRS agents, and on and on. And yet every single red line that they laid down, we crossed right over in negotiations, resulting in the largest savings in any legislation in the history of the Congress. This was a huge accomplishment, huge legislative wins. And lastly, Margaret, I think when you look at the president's statements, all he could do is talk about things that didn't happen versus anything that did happen that was positive for his agenda. Well, a trillion to a trillion and a half over 10 years in savings. But you said there was an erosion of trust within your own party between you and some of those harder line Freedom Caucus members uh, who said it was a bad deal that you negotiated. And this morning, Congressman uh, Ken Buck of Colorado said Speaker McCarthy has credibility issues. Um, And while a motion to vacate won't happen right away, he should be concerned about being removed from office. How big of a problem is this right wing of your party? Look, there were erosion of trust issues because folks went out and began attempting to define or interpret a deal while we were still in negotiations. There wasn't even an agreement struck. And of course, their interpretation or definition of the agreement, as you can imagine, was flawed. In regard to Speaker McCarthy, let's be crystal clear. Uh, This speaker has been one of the best strategists we've ever had, delivering transformative immigration, energy, parents' bill of rights, and other legislation that looking back in previous Congresses, not even one of these things has been done, much less we're about 10 huge wins this year. But 71 members of the House Republican caucus voted against it. I know you had 67 percent. I mean, you had the majority of your caucus, but 71, that's not nothing there. I mean, can you rule out a government shutdown in the fall? Are these hardline members going to be emboldened on the back of this? Well, Margaret, let's talk about what their goals are. Their goals are trying to change the trajectory of spending, transform Washington in a way that's more responsive, long-term thinking about the next generation and the fiscal crisis that we're approaching. I, I don't think that should be a partisan issue. We should all be on board with those objectives. In this case, I think that leverage was trying to be exercise that that really threaten the economy in a large way. We've already seen under this administration, the stock market has lost around $9 trillion in value, hurting retirement accounts and and families all across the country. We can't continue to see those types of challenges. And so I do think that in the appropriations process, we are going to be working hard to continue the momentum that we've gained through this negotiation, saving trillions of dollars. Can you rule out a government shutdown? I'm not ruling out anything. It depends on how reasonable each side is, obviously, in the negotiations. It's very difficult to predict. But I want to be clear. Republicans are going to demand continuing to build upon the success that we were able to achieve in debt ceiling negotiations in changing the way that Washington spends. Well, I know you're one of Speaker McCarthy's lieutenants here. But when you hear a member go out on television, on CNN and say that he should be worried about his job, that he doesn't have the faith of the caucus, that's got to be concerning. That affects your tactics at a minimum. Look, I've known Ken Buck for years and certainly respect him. It is not a mainstream position. I'll tell you right now, Speaker McCarthy's position is absolutely safe. He is going to continue delivering wins for the country, changing the direction of Washington and being more representative of the the priorities Mm -hmm. of Americans across the country. I have no doubt. His position is safe, and we're going to keep marching forward, continuing to build upon the historic wins that he's been able to achieve this year. So to to get what you're calling these historic wins, though, Democrats would say Republicans took the economy hostage. It was a pretty big game of chicken here to, to threaten default. I mean, Fitch Ratings is now saying even with this deal, they still could downrate U.S. credit outlook here because of political standoffs around the debt limit and last minute suspensions before the X date. It lowers confidence in America. Why was it worth possibly damaging America as 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 the benchmark of the financial system and the credibility? You know, yeah, Margaret, it's a great question. I think it's one that you need to post to the White House, considering the fact that they refused to negotiate for 100 days, despite indicating otherwise. Uh, they're the ones who brought us to the brink. If we had begun negotiations back in February when the president and the speaker first had their, their meeting right, to discuss Right, but it was a point this, of leverage that Republicans were using. Up, then we'd never, we wouldn't be in this situation today. We would have finished negotiation months ago. 
So would you take, as some Democrats are talking about, take the debt ceiling just off the table entirely? I know you've suspended it for two years, but what about a vote to just get rid of it? No, I don't you think need that's the appropriate. Leverage? I, I think that it's really important, just like if you had a child, Margaret, that hit their credit card limit, and was unable to pay their credit card bill that month, you'd probably step in and help them out. I know that I would, but I'd also have a candid conversation about reform of spending. The Committee for Responsible Federal Budget has, has calculated that every child or grandchild born in America today is going to end up paying about four and a half million dollars because of the irresponsible spending in Washington. Mm-hmm. Four and a half million over their lifetime. That is absolutely inexcusable. And we cannot continue on this trajectory. Well, one of the things that fellow Republicans are criticizing is the fact that you adopted the Biden defense budget uh, and the three and a half percent boost, which doesn't keep up with inflation. How do you justify that that doesn't hurt defense? Uh, Because that's what Republicans like Lindsey, Lindsey Graham are saying. Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. So so let's keep in mind that we're actually increasing defense by about $20 billion to $886 billion. When you take every other function of government, it equals about $704 billion. Uh, there's no question in my mind that we can improve efficiency of the Department of Defense, the large-scale acquisition programs, whether it be weapon systems, aircraft, and others. Uh, we're all familiar with the toilet seats and hammer stories of the past where the Department of Defense was paying outrageous prices. So we are going to continue continue ensuring that our warfighters have the upper hand while we also ensure that the Department of Defense improves its efficiency. Well, we'll have to have you back. Garrett Graves, we're going to leave it there for today. We turn now to West Virginia Democratic Senator Joe Manchin. Senator, welcome back. We really came down to the wire here. It's good to be with you. Um, when you were, well, it's a shame that we do that. Yeah. I know. When you were with us in March, I remember you saying uh, Speaker McCarthy and Joe Biden, they just have to stop grandstanding and they needed to start negotiating. How much of a miscalculation was it by Democrats to wait? I think it's, it's, it's harmful. It shows you that the extreme left was pushing so hard not to even negotiate, not to even talk about it. You know, just hold your ground, hold your ground, hold your ground. That's not who we are in America. The process of democracy. Well, they, they we said that the, the Republicans were hostage takers, right? How can you be a hostage taker if basically you're talking about shouldn't we recognize that we have an unmanageable debt? Shouldn't we figure out how we got here so fast and so high at $31.5 trillion? Trajectory is out of sight if we don't do something. So I want to give both sides, negotiating teams, credit. When you have uh, Garrett Graves and, and Congressman Graves and his team on behalf of Kevin McCarthy did a wonderful job. And when you have basically, uh, mm-hmm. you had Shalanda Young, you had Steve Rochetti and Louisa Terrell working on behalf of the president. Those were good people that worked together to make this happen. It's a shame that we didn't acknowledge it much quicker, yeah. three months ago at least, and, and not come down to brinksmanship when it kind of throws the uncertainty into the market to where here we are, the reserve currency of the world market. Yeah. The reserve currency of the world has to have stability where people believe that it's it's safe. Yeah. You can't play these games. Agreed. Well, you you also got an energy project tucked into this, the Mountain Valley Pipeline, which cuts through your states, also cutting through Virginia. And Senator Tim Kaine said this was a slimy way to handle it. That was his word, because it bypasses the courts and has the government seizing land from people in a hard hit part of his state. How do you respond to that? Well, first of all, Tim Kaine is my dear friend and a good person. He and I were governors together, so we understand both of our states very well. And the southwest Virginia area he's talking about is entirely my entire state as demographics along those lines. Uh, First of all, this has been under review for over eight years. Eight years. Now, for eight years, basically, a lot of this land has already been purchased and people have been paid. Fair market values, and they've negotiated and paid. Uh, Next of all, it's gone through eight NEPA reviews. Eight it's been in the court system nine times. And then on top of that, Margaret, these processes or these projects yeah. cannot move forward unless the FERC Commission determines there is a need. Now, three times they have issued a need for this product as far as more gas in right. the market. Next of all, Jennifer Granholm and this administration came out with a statement saying this is of national interest. Mm-hmm. The people in the Carolinas are paying 10 times more than we are in West Virginia for the gas we produce. That's ridiculous for them to have that. Uh, well, a heck of a stranglehold on them. And also helping the rest of the secured national markets as far as energy. You have to be independent. You have to be secured. 
this is a great project that's going to help not only just West Virginia, but okay. the entire energy security system. Okay. Well, it's interesting because last month you said you were going to block all of Joe Biden's, President Biden's EPA nominees until he halts a radical climate agenda. But he just greenlit a whole bunch of fossil fuel projects, including this one. Um, you've been very critical of the president in recent months. Does this change your point of view? Are you ready to endorse him? Well, the bottom line is, is that I'm going to work whenever I think that basically we're moving in the right direction. What you've just seen is basically the extremes trying to run this operation. The United States government yeah. from the far left and far right. It was the middle that pulled everybody together. It was basically reacting to the people saying enough is enough. Well, that wasn't That's a yes when I asked you about endorsing to, him, though. Well, the bottom line is I'm not involved in the political process right now with all the things that we have to do. Everyone thinks about politics first. I don't. It's mm -hmm. not about the politics. It's not about my reelection or anyone else. We have an awful lot of work to do, and we still have permitting to get done. We yeah. have a, a geopolitical unrest around the world. We have to support Ukraine. We have to make sure that we get our financial house in order and get inflation down. Okay. But if you throw politics in, I'll guarantee you won't get any decisions on any of that. Okay. To, I, to, I don't think we would have got this bill done. To get all those permitting issues done, we, because you only got a fraction of them in this bill, you want things that will help speed up right. energy infrastructure permitting for both fossil fuels and for clean energy. Do you need a second term? Can Absolutely. You, do you need a second term to get those things done? I mean, another term? Excuse well, me, are you running for re-election? <laughs> You've got to continue to keep working. We can get it done now. We're on the brink of getting it done right now. We could have got it done last year, but politics entered into it and we couldn't. And now here we are. We got part of it done. We got basically some reforms done as far right. as permitting. And now what we can do is basically make sure that we're able to get the pipelines and the delivery system we need for clean fossil all over this country to be energy independent and also be able to invest in the technologies uh, of the cleaner technologies with, with less carbon. But we're going to need more transmission. But you know I'm what? for all in above yeah. energy policy. But you know why I asked it that way? Because I can support this from wherever I'm at. <laughs> from wherever you're at, yeah, you're know. leaving your I options. Know exactly. <laughs> you know why? Because Jim Justice, your governor, Republican, he's coming for your job. He has declared. And I know you have said you are going to take your time till the end of the year to decide. But doesn't he have a, at least six month advantage here? Don't you need to tell people what your plans are? Well, here's the thing, Margaret, you just said I'm, I'm about my job. My job is to do what I can to help the people of West Virginia and support this great country of ours and defend the Constitution. That's truly yeah. the primary cause of my job. It's not for me to get reelected. Yeah. Now, if I run, I'm going to win. And I'm, I'm looking at everything I can to basically help my country to be stronger, to be more moderate, more centrist govern than anything mm -hmm. I've ever done. That's what my focus is, because I know that's where good decisions. Look what happened here. We got clear to the brink, yeah. but this is the first time I've ever seen from the House working with the, the, the Democrats, Akeem Jeffries and his team, working right. with Kevin McCarthy and his team to make something happen. I read about that when it used to be Tip O'Neill and President Reagan. Now I've seen it. Okay. And I've seen also President Biden and his team come back yeah. to the middle, getting away from where the left have pushed them. So well, basically, it's the middle that brought them together. Well, that's what Joe Manchin. There's always more to talk <laughs> that's to where you. We are no <laughs> more to talk to you about. And I want you to come back to talk to us when you make a decision about whether you're running for re-election or that other option you said last time you're leaving open, possibly. A presidential. Everything, everything's open. Everything's on the table. Nothing off the table. But hey, Mark, one thing <laughs> yeah. I wanted to mention to you: we need Again. a risk. We need a risk assessment team, a risk management team for the United States of America to get to this brinksmanship every time. Yes. We should be taking on this on seriously every day. What's we're, the risk we're taking if we don't do that? I want to talk. I want to talk about that with uh, one of our upcoming guests, the CEO of Bank of America. So stay with us. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. 
With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts, included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free, or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. We've got some good news about America's job market this week, but there appear to be economic headwinds on the horizon. Mark Strassman reports. The bill is passed. Turmoil averted by Washington's treasured blueprint, governing by crisis. The great news for Americans right now is that we avoided the catastrophe of hitting the debt ceiling. I think the troubling news is that we came that close. But like Washington, the rest of us have bills to pay. Good news first, spending consumers keep creating more jobs. Employers added another 339,000 jobs in May gains in healthcare, construction, leisure, and hospitality. But still not enough job seekers for restaurateur Nick Osborne. We are in need of some extra depth, and it has been hard to find that extra depth for sure. But there were also layoffs in the tech sector, and a sharp rise in black unemployment that pushed up the overall jobless rate. It's a snapshot of a complicated, wobbly economy, with stubbornly high inflation and the specter of a recession. Pessimism's having a late spring to remember. In a recent Gallup poll, 55% of people believe their financial situation is only fair or poor. Half say it's worsening. Fewer Americans, less than two in three, have $400 squirreled away for an emergency. And that's the bonus you. For house hunters, that struggle hits home. Loan applications down roughly 30% from a year ago. Why? Rising interest rates, now just under 7%, tightening credit, and cities like Orlando have a startling lack of inventory. One-third the sellers this market needs. They don't want to leave because they don't want to give up their interest rate. For the first time in more than a year, the Fed is expected to hold rates steady at its regular meeting later this month, at least for now. Like everyone, uncertain whether this economy is stabilizing. Margaret? Mark Strassman, thank you. For more now, we are joined by the CEO of Bank of America, Brian Moynihan. Good to have you back here in person. It's great to be here, Margaret. Thank you for having us. Well, the, our last two guests talked about the fact that we came to the edge. What do you think is the financial cost here since America's credit rating is still in question? Well, I've been CEO. We had the one in 11. We had the one in 13. It's not good for the United States to go through this. It's a political process. It's, it's good they came to resolution. It's good it's behind us. And I think that has provided momentary momentum in the markets and allows us to face the real economic issues and real debt level issues ahead of us. Because some of the CEOs of banks have talked about setting up war rooms and doing emergency planning. I mean, how much of an impact is there? Well, it's because it's over. There was an impact. We were doing all that. We were prepared in case... Uh, you know, it didn't come out right, but the good news, it came out right. And you heard your past guest talk about the uh, coming together in the center and voting it through, which is mm-hmm. good. And so now we can move forward. But there's still issues ahead of us, and we can talk about those. Well, do you think that they should get rid of the debt ceiling, as some CEOs have called for? It, it, that's a political question. At the end of the day, we need to have a serious discussion about how much debt we can have in this country, how much we could afford, and how it's spent. And that discussion needs to go on. The debt ceiling triggers certain uh, debates around it at certain times. It's it's part of the process of government, and mm-hmm. whether you're Republican, the Democrats have to get together and do it. And we have to be careful that we keep the financial stability and strength of the United States paramount. Because at the end of the day, if we're not strong, the rest of the world is not going to be strong. Well, let's talk about that strength, um, because the Federal Reserve is predicting a mild recession on the horizon. What are you seeing there in terms of how the consumer is behaving and where we might be seeing any kind of slowdown? So the last time I was here was it was the end of uh, last year, and we predicted a recession this year. We moved it out. It's basically third quarter this year, fourth quarter this year, into the first quarter, a mild recession. Uh, and unemployment gets up in a high 4% range, um, still very low by historical norms. And that's our core prediction. As you think ahead of it, what's going on now is the impact of the Fed's tightening has had, had its effect. So consumer spending... 22 over 21 by Bank of America consumers, 4 trillion plus a year, mm-hmm. was up 9%. Uh, 
Year to date, it's up about 5%. In the month of May, it was up about 4% over last May. So it's slowing down. That level is more consistent with a 2% growth economy and a 2% inflation economy, not a 4% inflation level economy, 4 to 5%. So the Fed is getting the consumer spending level in line. And now you're, we have the jobs report and other things which send some confusing and ambiguous yeah. messages. But the reality is the, the activity of the consumer is more in line with what the Fed wanted because the rate increases and other aspects have had their effect. Quantitative tightening has had the effect. You just gestured to this, that the prediction of recession keeps getting pushed out. It's basically like economists keep getting surprised by some of the data out there. Is the prediction that going into this presidential election year ahead of us, that we will be in the midst of a recession? You know, I think we're at the point now with the Fed having uh, tightened as much as it has with the impact of, of the failures of two or three banks, which were different than the, a lot of the banks, but failed. The impacts of the uh, Treasury funding has to come forward. The impacts of the environment around us, it, it slowed the economy down. Mm-hmm. The question is, is inflation under control? And yeah. right now, you know, most people are thinking, in, like in 1984, when Continental Illinois failed and Volcker, who was fighting mm-hmm. inflation heavy, paused then that maybe the Fed should yeah. pause and let, let the effects of all this take hold and let's be seen what happens. But yeah. at the end of the day, that has a slight recession or is a slight recession. Welcome back to Face the Nation. We're back with the CEO of Bank of America, Brian Moynihan. I want to pick up on something you indicated earlier um, when you said the Fed had accomplished something. You, you said recently the Fed won the war. Is that the war against inflation? Well, the inflation's tipping over, but one of the toughest things for the Federal Reserve is the power of the U.S. consumer. And they were, they, were, they were employed, they were earning more money, and they were spending. And what you're seeing is that's tipping down. That's a key component to actually getting inflation under control. Because if people, the unemployment's at all-time lows. People are getting you know, 5 6 7% wage increases. And on a multi-year above the rate of inflation, and a one-year not, uh, that, that creates a hard job for the Fed to slow that down. Because the U.S. economy is so consumer-led. They, they have won that battle. They've won that, that battle. Inflation's tipping over, but importantly, you can see the U.S. consumer activity slowing down, which then, if you project that out, ought to bring inflation down to match it. With one of the impacts of the banking turmoil we just went through, for lack of a better term, we're hearing about credit tightening up. Um, what are you doing to tighten up lending standards? How much harder is it for consumers to come out and borrow money? You know, at Bank of America, we have responsible growth. We've been driving for a decade. We don't really change lending standards that much given d- different types of cycle. But just to give you a sense, the consumer uh, credit quality in our industry is very strong. Um, if, uh, most of us are reporting numbers now that are below 2019, which is a multi-decade low in consumer credit costs. So that's good news. Lending has tightened largely because of two factors. Beginning late last year, just the feeling that a recession, every, everybody was predicting a recession and going into recession. Mm-hmm. People tend to tighten credit standards, tougher covenants and things like that. And then the second thing is the disruption caused the capacity of lend to come down, which again is the, as they pulled money out of the banking system and onto the, into the Federal Reserve as cash or into the overnight repo facility and deposits have come down, part of the monetary tightening, there's less engine in, in the engine room to lend. And then, so that causes banks to make, be more careful when they lend and who they lend to and how much they lend. And so that's tightened credit standards pretty, pretty dramatically. And it's more expensive to get a mortgage. It's, it's more expensive because rates went up. When, right. when the Fed raises rates, they're trying to slow down borrowing right. cap- uh, capacity. And in the most ho- you know, housing and autos and things are most rate sensitive, come down the quickest. And then things like mortgage loans, most, you know, 90% of the consumers are locked into mortgage loan below 5%. So that slows down. And right. so, but home buying and other things kind of bounce around until everybody gets used to rate cycle and then it moves back up. We were in a very low rate cycle for 15 years. And that, that's a little bit what's confusing people. Are you slowing down your hiring right now? Yes, we are. Last May, we hired 3,000 people. This May, we hired 700 people. And that's due to the attrition rate has slowed so much and we need to trim head count. So we'll be down 3,000. Uh, FT this quarter. We don't, we're not making layoffs. We're trying to do it by attrition. But even the attrition slowed to half what it was last year. And when I talk to other companies, mm-hmm. I get the same input. Depends on the industry. If you're trying to get welders in very specific areas, that's, that's a lot of, that's a tough work on the employment side. But yeah. if you're in a general industry, the employment conditions have leveled back out. They're still, yes. still strong for employment, but it leveled out a bit. And that's good news because, again, that right. allows the uh, tightening cycle to pause or slow down mm-hmm. as, and let the economy get back under itself. Brian Moynihan, good to have you here in person. We'll be right back.
When you choose Organic Valley, not only will you be enjoying great tasting dairy, you'll help to save over 1,600 small organic family farms who are protecting over 400,000 acres of organic farmland and all the plants and animals that call it home. This is dairy you can feel good about. It's great tasting, high-quality organic dairy, ethically sourced from small organic family farms. To find Organic Valley Dairy near you, visit ov.coop. That's ov.coop. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Campaign 2024 got down to business in Iowa this weekend as most of the declared or potential Republican candidates visited the early nominating state. Notably absent, the GOP frontrunner, former President Donald Trump, who was off the trail this weekend. Joining us now to discuss are three of our sharpest political reporters, CBS News political correspondent Caitlin Huey Burns, Ed O'Keefe is a senior White House and political correspondent, and Robert Costa is our chief elections and campaigns correspondent. Welcome to you all. Um, I want to start with you on Donald Trump, because we learned from the Department of Justice that they will not be bringing charges against Mike Pence for his classified document that he was mishandling. What do we know about the case against Mr. Trump? Sources with knowledge of the investigation believe that a charging decision in the documents case on the federal level being led by the special counsel is imminent. It could be coming in the next few weeks. In fact, the grand jury might have some activity this week. We hear from sources close to to this investigation. We also hear that the Trump lawyers might be meeting at some point with the Justice Department to talk through where things stand. When will we know, when you say the next few weeks and imminent, um, there is a Republican debate in August. Uh, Are we going to know the answer to this before they all take the stage? The investigations, Margaret, over former President Trump, they loom over this entire presidential race. We hear that a charging decision could be made in June on the documents case. The January 6th investigation by the special counsel continues, but that could end up going into 2024 when some of these primaries are unfolding next year. But right before the debate, the thing to pay attention to, a charging decision and a possible indictment in Georgia where Trump is being investigated for pressuring election officials, that could come in early August, just weeks before that first debate in Milwaukee in late August. This is going to be an incredible uh, primary season (laughs) Uh, with that. um, I want to turn to you, Caitlin, because when they take this debate stage, in order to even walk on alongside Mr. Trump or whomever else, uh, there are some parameters that are being set. We know there are at least 10 Republicans who may be on the stage. Mm -hmm. To get up there, they have to agree to endorse whoever the nominee is. Yeah, they're being asked to sign this loyalty pledge. And what's interesting about this field is that when you ask the candidates, will you commit to supporting Donald Trump if he's the nominee, they really won't say. I've interviewed Mike Pence and Tim Scott, and they Uh, have not been able to answer that question. On the other hand, Trump hasn't been able to answer that question either. He hasn't said whether he will uh, support the eventual nominee if it's not him or if he will participate in the debates altogether. That Mm. still remains kind of a wild card here. He could be advantaged skipping the first debate. He's ahead of the polls, of course. He's the front runner, at least at this point. Uh, But at the same time, if he does skip the debate, that does give his rivals the opportunity to make their case as the alternative without having to stand there and kind of weather the attacks. But that assumes there are attacks, right? I mean, we're listening to some of these speeches out in Iowa, Ed. He was the candidate who loomed large, but his name was not spoken. That's right. And Chris Christie, who may be jumping in, one of the few who who does take aim directly at the former president, but he said he's not going to be a hired assassin. That's what he told Politico. Right. Look, there's a a ceiling that he's hitting right now, about 35 40%. Everyone else in this race knows that. And they're focused on that 60% or so that's still out there to be had. Everything is Donald Trump's to lose. I think anyone showing up to an event hosted by somebody else is clearly curious 
and, and the idea of all the legal matters he's facing, all the personal issues he's dragged along with him through the years, uh, is on the minds of these voters, especially in Iowa where we were this week. Uh, a lot of them saying, look, if he's ultimately the guy, I'll pull the plug, I'll be there for him. But all this stuff or this baggage, you know, I'm kind of done with it and I'm hoping somebody else rises. And the names we hear, Ron DeSantis, Tim Scott, Nikki Haley are the three that came from voters' voices most frequently when talking about somebody else. Mm-hmm. All of them understand they've got to lay out what they're about, what they would do differently, because um, they're obviously not Donald Trump. And DeSantis, notably, several times over the course of this past week, was asked about Trump or mm-hmm. made inferences to him in his remarks, uh, making it clear that he thinks uh, the party has to move on. He called his attacks juvenile, said that's why he lost voters back in 2020 and why he won't be able to drag them back. I mean, if that's not the argument some other Republican isn't going to make, right. uh, you know, w- w- what will work to but, convince those Republicans otherwise? But then that question... Uh, Robert, is always, does a possible, you know, movement in this case, does an indictment for hypothetical purposes matter here? Um, Or is that even what we're talking about at this point? To build on what Caitlin and Ed laid out, there is a real wait and see mentality with so many of these campaigns. They don't want to attack Trump on the investigations. They want to see all of that run its course, but they are starting to not necessarily attack Trump, but take out the scaffold on policy. Mm-hmm. And you can expect Pence, when he gets into the race this week, according to people close to him, to start, to start saying Trump is not conservative enough to be the Republican nominee. And you're also seeing that same type of attack from Governor DeSantis coming at Trump from the right, linking him with Dr. Anthony Fauci, saying the response to the pandemic was too favorable to corporations, too federal in its nature. So this is a different kind of position for Trump to be in, not to be facing questions about his conduct or his character, but about his conservatism. It's fascinating. Caitlin, you um, have been looking very closely at the issue of abortion as this galvanizing political force. Um, President Biden had said that he would set a national standard of access up to the point of viability, which is roughly 24 weeks under Roe versus Wade. But the Republican candidates each has a different answer here, and um, they don't seem to have a unified position on how to handle something that is so politically loaded. Exactly. Well, Republicans right now are caught between a primary electorate that is cheering the overturning of Roe versus Wade and a general electorate, a broader electorate that has really rejected that decision. We saw that at the ballot box in 2022, and especially in places like Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. We saw it earlier this year in Wisconsin. When you talk to Republicans, operatives, and also those on the anti-abortion side, they want want the candidates to be engaging in this issue because they feel like they ceded ground last time around. And so you do have um, groups like Susan B. Anthony List pushing candidates to take a stance on federal abortion restrictions. Mm -hmm. And that has kind of tied these candidates up in knots. I think what changed this week, however, is how the candidates were talking about it in Iowa. Obviously, Iowa is where the evangelical base is. Uh, Governor Kim Reynolds signed a six-week abortion ban there. So you heard Governor DeSantis talking about that, playing up his six-week abortion ban that he signed into law in Florida. That's a play for those voters, and they're more open about it. We also got a more uh, concrete answer from Donald Trump, who has tried to kind of avoid this altogether, trying to remind voters that he was responsible for overturning. But the federal, but but the Republican line on this had been it's up to the states. And I thought it was interesting when Nikki Mm -hmm. Haley was on this program recently, she said uh, candidates are not being honest when they claim it's possible to get a national law on abortion. And there is some truth to that, right? The idea of, you know, having 60 senators to pass anything is is (laughs) unlikely. Um, But it is trying to kind of thread that needle between the primary electorate that you need to come out and support you in a place like Iowa and general electorates, especially women. Also notable that they'll play this issue differently in New Hampshire, Nevada than they do in Iowa and South Carolina. Ed, I have to ask you about the man running for re-election, mm-hmm. President Joe Biden. Yeah. Um, it was a big week for him uh, with this bipartisan deal. But in that speech from the Oval Office, it went quickly from very bipartisan to a bit of a campaign speech. Yeah, let's raise taxes on the uh, exactly on, on the wealthy and, uh, and let's remind ourselves of what Republicans were pushing for in that deal that didn't get through. The goal through the end of this year is to just keep him being president, looking presidential. He's got meetings this week with the Danish and British prime ministers. He's going to have some events on the economy. He's meeting with the Kansas City chiefs. All of that sort of checks the box of I'm commander in chief, I'm in charge. 
Look at the big deal I just got. He'll be raising a lot of money between now and the end of the year. Not a lot of campaigning. That's not because of his age. That's not because of his vigor. It's consistent with what President Obama did back in 2011 and in, going into 2012. And they believe if he can raise all that money now, they'll be more than happy to spend it next year. And they want to just sit back and watch Republicans squabble over how many weeks of a ban should there be for abortion, mm -hmm. who's conservative enough, knowing that they should be able to go into those elections next year in the six or seven battleground states and, and hope that they can continue to make the compelling argument. They worry that if it's not Trump, there's a generational argument to be had, which is why you saw Ron DeSantis alongside his wife and young kids so much in recent days, and you'll continue to. Uh, it's also why they got to get the vice president out there a bit more to talk about you know, issues of concern, especially to the base. All right. Uh, this is going to be a very interesting <laughs> campaign season. Thanks to all of you. It's just starting. It's just <laughs> starting. But get ready for a busy summer. There's no slow summers anymore, news-wise. Um, thanks to all of you for joining us. Quick programming note, tune in next Sunday for an interview with North Dakota Republican Governor Doug Burgum, who's expected to launch a 2024 presidential bid in the coming days. We'll be right back. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this, central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. We turn now to the war in Ukraine. Ambassador Oksana Markarova joins us for an update. Good morning to you. It's good to have you back with us. Good morning. Always good to be back. I want to ask you about what's happening now, because uh, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said U.S.-trained Ukrainian brigades have arrived in Ukraine, and they've been rehearsing, training, and maintaining for weeks. He mentioned the weather has improved. He's describing the conditions for that counteroffensive to potentially begin very soon. What are you expecting in the coming days and weeks? Well, you know, for us, counteroffensive never stopped, to be honest. Since February 24, that's all we were focusing on, how to liberate our land. But of course, with additional trade brigades, with additional equipment, with everything that we're working on now, uh, we are hoping that uh, our commanders... Uh, as soon as they will see the openings, we'll start this, uh, whether it's going to be one or several counteroffensives. But the faster we can liberate all the territory and all our people, of course, the better. So I will not, of course, as uh, you, you heard our president and our commanders, we will not announce anything. We will not. We will see it when the results are there. Uh, but uh, we are expecting to liberate more soon. And your president said we are ready. Um, Russia, though, throughout the course of the week has been launching uh, missile attacks, including on the capital of Kyiv. Uh, they appear to be testing your air defenses. Um, and I know President Zelensky has said Ukraine needs more Patriot missiles. Are you getting help getting that kind of air defense right now? Well, Is the U.S. doing enough? We are very grateful for everything we are receiving. So it's Patriots, it's NASOMs, it's all other capabilities. But we clearly need more. So what Russians have been doing again, for 466 days now, but also this week, you know, we have seen how daily, several times a day, there were deadly attacks by rockets, but also Shahid drones all, all the time. So uh, it, it's the terror, it's the destruction that it brings, but also it's the, you know, expanding our capabilities that we have now. We definitely need more. The Biden administration released another 300 million in military aid. Some of that included drones. Are these surveillance drones? Are these attack drones that the U.S. is giving? It's uh, a range of, of the drones. So, And we need all of them. We need the surveillance. We need the attack drones. We need the kamikaze drones. So there will be different capabilities in the packages. Um, there is an upcoming NATO meeting in July that the president, President Biden, is expected to attend. And Ukraine's entry, possible entry into the military alliance is a topic there. Do you know what the U.S. is going to promise? Well, we all look forward to this summit. 
Uh, Ukraine has uh, NATO aspirations, transatlantic aspirations in our hearts, in our constitution, and the majority of people support it since 2008, when uh, the first declaration was made that we will be members of NATO. Uh, we believe it's time to start discussing uh, some specific steps in that regard. Now, again, as President Zelensky said, we are realists. We understand the uh, uh, limitations that the ongoing war puts to it. But I think at this moment, after this horrible violation of international law, after Russia attacked us completely not provoked when we were not part of NATO, after historic decisions on Finland and uh, Sweden, mm -hmm. uh, it's time for everyone to realize that it's about good versus evil. And we need to be members of NATO as much as NATO needs Ukraine also in order because we have a lot to add to NATO. So yes, we look forward to this forum to discuss this. Your president said he knows this wouldn't happen until after the war is concluded. In other words, the U.S. wouldn't be drawn in directly to this conflict now as a NATO member. But promise a future entry. What are the security guarantees that you are looking for? Well, you know, the President Zelensky put out this peace formula, which clearly outlines how the war should end and how to build, uh, restore the security. So there is a lot of elements. It's, it's the military security, justice, rebuilding, uh, rebuilding Ukraine, uh, ensuring that we can all together deter Russia from making it again. And it's all been discussed with, with partners individually, but also with the group. It was one of the items discussed at the G7 uh, summit and others. So it's a work in progress. But I think, you know, the real security guarantee, not for Ukraine, but for transatlantic community and for our part of the world, but globally for everyone who believes in UN statute, is for us in the future to become the member of the alliance that is a peaceful defensive alliance of the people with like-minded values. $45 billion in U.S. support to Ukraine has been pledged so far, but that funding ends in September and there'll have to be a request for more. Um, are you concerned about all the political pressures that may make that more difficult, particularly going into a presidential election year? Well, any democracy and Ukraine and the U.S. are both democracies have uh, good democratic elections and processes. And yes, it's an additional factor. But I believe American people support us. And we're very grateful for American people for the support we have received. We will always uh, remember it. And I know that the majority of politicians on both sides of the aisle, you know, uh, equally, we have this mm -hmm. strong bipartisan support. And I really hope that Ukraine will continue uniting people in Ukraine, even through this electoral process. Ambassador? We'll be watching closely in the coming days and weeks and thinking of Ukraine. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Turning now to rising tensions between the U.S. and China. A Chinese warship came within 150 yards of hitting an American missile destroyer in the Taiwan Strait. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said it was extremely dangerous. China's defense minister called the presence of that American destroyer a provocation to China and defend it, sailing the warship across its path. It's just the latest flare-up in the relationship between the two powers, and it came 34 years since the crackdown in Tiananmen Square, when Beijing brutally quashed peaceful pro-democracy protests by unleashing tanks and troops on demonstrators. The death toll is still unknown, but estimates range from several hundred to several thousand. Seven days after the massacre, then Face the Nation moderator Leslie Stahl briefed Americans on the fallout ahead of a conversation with the U.S. ambassador to China at the time. The White House now says the Chinese government has murdered many, many of its own people. Leader Deng Xiaoping and the other hardliners are consolidating their control over the country, searching out, rounding up the pro-democracy leaders, while Western businesses pack up and begin pulling out of China. Official Chinese television is denying there was ever any bloodbath, any brutality in Tiananmen Square, showing pictures of the arrests of what authorities there are calling thugs and hooligans. Ambassador Lilly, uh, in the morning papers today, there are a lot of stories uh, suggesting that the U.S.-China relationship is tearing apart, is disintegrating rapidly. There's a lot of anti-Americanism in their official press. Uh, 
what, what's your assessment of where we stand? President Bush keeps saying he wants to preserve the relationship. Uh, how is that possible at this point? I think we've gone through many ups and downs with China, and I think right now we're going through a down, but I don't think we should uh, sort of give up on it. I think that would be a terrible mistake. Those ups and downs continue today. China's defense minister refuses to speak to Secretary Austin, but two top U.S. officials are arriving in Beijing today in an attempt to thaw relations. The visit comes after CIA Director Bill Burns' secret trip to China last month, becoming the most senior Biden administration official to visit Beijing since our relationship with China sharply deteriorated following the February shootdown of Chinese surveillance balloons over American territory. We'll be right back. That's it for us today. Thank you for watching. I'll be off next Sunday, but you will be in great hands with CBS News primetime anchor John Dickerson. Until next week, for Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were West Virginia Democratic Senator Joe Manchin, Louisiana Republican Congressman Garrett Graves, Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan, and Ukraine's ambassador to the United States, Oksana Markarova. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates in CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our CBS News streaming network on Sundays at 1.30, 4, 10 p.m. Eastern, and again at 4 a.m. the next morning. It's available through our apps, CBS News and Paramount+. Plus. Hey, Prime members. You can listen to Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Many put their hope in Dr. Serhat. His company was worth half a billion dollars. His research promised groundbreaking treatments for HIV and cancer. Scientists, doctors, renowned experts were saying, genius, genius, genius. People that knew him were convinced that he saved their life. But the brilliant doctor was hiding a secret. Do not cross this line that was being messaged to us. Do not cross this line. A secret the doctor was desperate to keep. This was a person who was willing to cold-heartedly just lie to people's faces. We're dealing with an international fugitive. From Wondery, the makers of Over My Dead Body and The Shrink Next Door comes a new season of Dr. Death, Bad Magic. You can listen to Dr. Death, Bad Magic ad-free by subscribing to Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.